On November 12, 2017, David Marquis passed away. I didn't know him very well, but we sat on a panel together at the face-to-face conference this past spring. This is what you will hear about uh, more in this episode. According to the New York Times obituary, David, actor, puppeteer, and arts educator, founded Marquis Studios in 1977. The company grew exponentially, and by 2016, the company was reaching 33,000 students annually. According to Marquis Studios' Facebook post, quote, David will be deeply missed as he was an amazing leader, great friend, inspiring mentor, and a pillar in the arts education community. There are no words to adequately express our sadness or our gratitude for the opportunities afforded to us by David's dreams of a more inclusive and arts-enriched educational system. But we will honor his memory by continuing to build upon his legacy within the arts education community, end quote. Thank you, David. Thank you for listening to Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body. This is Episode 4, Arts Education, Learning, Celebrating, and Advocating, Act 2 recorded April 12th and 13th, 2017, at the City College of New York. I'm so damn tired of waiting on a perfect A plus B. One size fits all prudent kids all screaming about irrevocability. Let's burn some bridges, earn some stitches, and fight our own way in free. Cause the rules don't lie, but they don't apply to people like you and me. Let's start it up now. 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 Now they say it's all decided, all divided, all laid out. And the pushcart man with a three-part plan can't understand what you're shouting about. But when the past they plow, the lives allowed are the only roads you can see. Just remember the walls were built to fall for old people like you and me. Let's start it up now. 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 Hello, Teaching Artistry listeners. Even though it's no longer National Arts Education Week, we here at Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body, I'm Courtney J. Body, uh, we will continue, we are continuing to celebrate arts education because to me, every week is Arts Education Week. So to culminate this series, Arts Education, Learning, Celebrating, Advocating, we hear another conversation I had at the face-to-face conference. Uh, this conversation was with Penelope McCourty, who is a dancer choreographer, and Lauren Jost, who's a theater maker and puppeteer. And we we're talking about pay rates for teaching artists and a livable wage. Um, these are two of some of my favorite people. They are quite intelligent. They are quite passionate women. And um, I'm very proud to call them my friends. They are advocates for teaching artists, and um, in this particular conversation, we're talking about the fact that we had just gotten out of, or we, we were just in, 
uh, a presentation where the three of us plus David Marquis were talking about um, these two things, pay rates and a livable wage. And it was led by Lauren and she was representing the Roundtable uh, Teaching Artists Affairs Committee. So mind you, uh, while you're listening, we were outside in a quad, uh, and so there might be some ambient noise that you hear in the background. I mean, we were on a college campus after all. All right, take a listen. So yesterday I was here presenting on storytelling about the change in early childhood um, settings with families and classrooms, and then- And you were representing- I was representing Spellbound Theater, where I'm an artistic director. And then uh, today I was representing the Teaching Artist Affairs Committee of the Roundtable and um, presenting the results of a survey that the committee did last year on paying for professionalism, work structures, and, uh, and compensation in the field of teaching artistry. What were some big sort of juicy topics or of conversation that came out? I think um, one of the things that's really interesting is we were looking at when we started the survey, we were wanting to look at what is kind of an average teaching rate. When people say, oh, how much should I be paying my teaching artists? We wanted to have a, some data to say, well, this is what some people are getting paid. This is what other people are getting paid. And look at the range. Um, what we found is that the range um, is overwhelming. It's not, it's not so inconsistent. Like There seems to be some really good groupings around like $50, $60 an hour for teaching artist work, but that the bulk of the work that's being done is being paid under the living wage in New York. So that was a really interesting conversation to kind of realize like, yeah, uh, we have some cohesiveness in the field, but it's cohesively not sustainable for teaching artists in a, in a growing profession. And um, one of the conversations that I was really interested in facilitating today was the discussion about um, the difference between a living wage and a professional wage and whether if we are expecting uh, teaching artists to be operating at a high professional level, which at a place like Face to Face, which is all about quality and programming, um, like that's a shared goal, then why are we still not paying people a living wage, let alone a professional wage? I really appreciated that there were a lot of administrators in that room. More than half of the people in the room were exactly. Yeah. And that made me feel very joyous because it said to me that they're listening and they're interested in this conversation and compensating at a level that is uh, equitable. But do you think that it's a quagmire? So this is one of the things that I realized is that this idea of $60 an hour um, is not actually the right equation for a lot of organizations. And it's, a, it's really about, I think, and this is one of the things that we tried to present is this idea of, of what percentage of somebody's annual income are you providing them? So for example, to your organization, The New Victory, and David Marquis uh, from Marquis Studios, you guys, your hourly rate that you advertise is very different. Um, but also the kind of work that you're sending them out for is very different. He's saying, we're not gonna send anyone out for less than four classes. You know if you're going in, you're gonna be getting paid for four classes. So if you consider that a half day's work, and you might be sending me out for one class, which is also a half day's work. Mm -hmm. Like it still takes me a half a day right. to get there, do the planning, the prep, the reflection, mm -hmm. and get back home again. Mm -hmm. And those actually, they even out. So the contact hours may be different, but the um, the kind of half day's work is very similar. And I don't think $32,000 a year is a, is a livable wage. So interestingly, so just to, to that point, when you said 32,000, I was like, oh no, we've been working off of the, the living wage of a single person, no kids, living in New York City, 
in a, a, an apartment of their own, not with a roommate, uh, at 48, 48,000. Right. Um, and so we were working off of that. But, but what I thought was really fascinating about this conversation was there was the livable wage, but then this idea of a professional wage. Right. Um, and, and that's a higher wage in looking at other industries that are equitable and or uh, larger or like a conglomerate of different equities. What, what was it? It was arts, um, sports, was media. Arts, media, arts, media, entertainment, and sports. And that's that. Uh, that's a category that's um, created by the New York State Department of Labor. Right, and that was at eighty six. Eighty six thousand dollars is the median wage oh. in that category, which that's very very non profit. That's that's making. a very ch- big challenge. Like most yeah. most people at the senior level. Of a nonprofit are not necessarily making that much money. Right. Um, so, sorry, senior, senior, senior staff level. Um, some are, but it's that I think those are outliers. Yeah. And so to think about, okay, if if just just doing really quick math, mm-hmm. okay. So if we went from the livable wage that you originally said, thirty-two, mm-hmm. and an arts organization saying, okay, can we find a way, or could we strive, like I said, um, to be a fourth of that income? That's approximately uh, uh, math, uh, eight thousand dollars, mm-hmm. right? Right. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, eight thousand dollars over the course of a, a given fiscal year. That's interesting. We were looking at forty-eight, so that was a closer to eleven five. Mm-hmm. Um, and then to think about this average of eighty-six, could we maybe find a, a, a middle ground, right? So what if we were striving for sixty? Right. Right. Okay, so then that's $20,000. Yeah. Could we get there? We're not there. We are certainly not there yet. Like $50,000? Like, we don't even pay our full-time staff people that. So my question about that is, why would you expect me, with 15 years of experience and an advanced graduate degree, to be making, why do you assume that I should be making less per year than your program coordinator? Right? Like, why am I always going to be like, well, but, like, like what? At what point does a teaching artist merit the kind of pay that a senior staff person has? When, or is the answer for a teaching artist if you ever want to make as much money, you have to become a senior staff person. You have to leave the field. You have to. You are. Are we consigning? You change positions within the field, and you take your expertise elsewhere, um, or or change the way that you implement it. But I do. I would like to see, and I say this selfishly as a teaching artist who doesn't want to stop working in the field that I've in the job that I've committed my entire professional um, life to. I don't want to stop doing it just because I've hit a ceiling of forty five thousand dollars a year, and there's no way to go above that. You know, I have kids. I have a graduate. Well, student loans. I want to someday. I want to buy a house, um, and I, someday I want to retire. And I think that we are doing our field a disservice if we automatically assume that we are going to lose our most qualified, most experienced, and most efficient and quality people at the point where they decide that they cannot support their life, um, where they can't just be a single person with no dependents, right. making forty-five, fifty thousand dollars a year. Yeah. I'm really interested in the conversation of what it what it looks like to bring uh, teaching artists into the conversation around breaking that ceiling in terms of the types of work that we end up doing. Like I'm interested in, and you know, as I think the three of us know, uh, teaching artists and people in this field in general have a multitude of skills and talents, 
and are, are just incredible creators. So what happens if we, if we come together and start looking at, say, an organization, and wh what are ways that this organization can help you, Lauren, move forward in the work that you're doing, not only as a teacher, educator, as an artist, mm -hmm. programmatically? What does that look like? Right. And what does yeah. that look like as a teaching artist? Because yes. the answer for me has never been, I'm going to go into administration because mm -hmm. I am not a good administrator. <laughs> that is not yeah. my skill set. The thing that I um, was interested in is that there was a person in the development department. She said to me, you need to, like, more development people need to be in these rooms yeah. because they don't know. And that goes back to my, my experience last year at uh, Grant Makers for the Arts talking about teaching art, I was like, there's a lot of education that has to happen that funders don't understand what teaching arts playwrights are supposed to be, because they don't understand. They're, uh, a lot of the room, the, the funders in that particular uh, room were more thinking about individual funding for individual studio artists, mm -hmm. as opposed like community artists, as opposed to, I think, what we are talking about in terms of teaching artistry, just because the panoply of how teaching artists work in New York City is a lot more complex yeah. than elsewhere but if there's a lot of education that needs to happen yeah. then the whole thing that David Marquis said about like if an organization's funding structure is really focused or uh, seems to be very heavily based on the schools paying for yeah. the work and a portion of that is paid to teaching artists that they get locked into a, a contract yeah. for five years yeah. and those rates cannot change even if you can do an addendum, but that, but that, I, you know, I had lots to say about that. You know, that I feel like that's a um, there. There is a certain extent to which we, and I don't know David's program, and I don't want to like make a judgment on him, but from what I've seen in the field, there's a lot of ways in which you give a lot of organizations a pass on um, not raising their rates because of market forces and not recognizing the extent to which we drive the market forces. It, it's a small field. There's not that many of us. If, if we say this is what it costs and that's what it costs. This is our, our starting rate. If you want somebody who has training in special populations, it's it costs more. If you want somebody who's trilingual, it costs more. If you want somebody who's been working in, in the schools for 15 years and has a high capacity for working with really challenging classroom environments, it costs more. And we don't, we always start at the base rate and expect everyone to race to the bottom to compete for that rate, rather than making ourselves a competitive in terms of the quality and being transparent with the schools or clients about what we're, what we're, what we're uh, providing. Yeah, yeah I'm, 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 I'm thinking about how this conversation is so multi-layered, mm -hmm. but I, I kind of like what you're saying about the, the, like, this is how much it costs. Now let's talk, now let's have some serious conversations that have uh, ripple effects, yeah. right, on a whole lot of things. So it's, it's the nonprofit sector in its totality almost. And then, you know, the whole gender thing. That's mm -hmm. a now, I, I didn't say anything about that because I was like, that's not, that can't be right because rates should all be the same. It doesn't matter who gets hired. It's, I don't think it's about different organizations paying genders different rates. It's that the lower paying jobs hire oh, predominantly okay. women. Yeah. And the 
to be working yes. rather than don't you feeling just love it you would do it for free even yeah. that kind of language yeah. it's not um i don't know why no, i love when you're like you know you need to ask yeah. for what you want or even ask the questions that are about transparency why Um, and having that kind of discussion with your teaching artists. But I also think the way that we think about our, com our community as a whole is very compartmentalized anyway, right? Because like I think when I go in to teach at the school where I'm faculty, there is a certain, they see that work as, an, it's an activity. And then they say they understand the value of it, but it's not language it's not translating so and then I think about when I was an administrator and having not only to work the 40 hours at my desk but also working at home to get things done and not being compensated for that either so I think we have to look at all people within and, and that was a point that WT had brought up yeah. about you know the fact that in nonprofit people are overworked and underpaid yep and that's from the top to the bottom yeah. essentially teaching artists need to find the language to say so, the thing. So I guess my, my bigger question, because I, I, I know you need to go, so I, my, my bigger question that is completely related to this is I don't want to go to the compartmentalization, mm -hmm. but I do want to identify the categories of conversations that need to be had mm -hmm. to get us to a place where we're moving the needle on pay. Yeah. I don't know what all of them are, yeah. <laughs> but I would, uh, that's, that's something I would like to figure out so that we're, we're not scattered. Right. Yeah, yeah. There's something that you said about uh, education on a whole needing to happen and uh, different types of people needing to be in the room than are usually in the room. Yeah. You know, because when we do this, a lot of times it's teaching artists and we're all talking, yeah, yeah, <laughs> and yeah. But then it's like, okay. okay. So, but if you have development people in the room so they can understand what it, the scope of the work that we do, um, that that's a conversation. Those, those people need to be in the room. Administrators like today need to be in the room. And then we need to really kind of create language, create data so that we can go and take that to the people that need to, need to have it. Yeah. Oh, you guys are fantastic. Who are you telling? I really, I got to <laughs> Something I've been thinking about um, for a long time is a pathway of, of um, professional growth. And I remember having a conversation with you, Courtney, when I was um, around 30, and I just had my first baby and was suddenly starting to think, you know, maybe I want to stay in this field, but I want to uh, feel like I'm going somewhere and, I, and that I'm, I'm I am contributing to my family rather than drawing away from my family and that my career is not costing my family money to sustain and and that's a um, a conversation that is about opportunity how do I have leadership in the field how do I get to um, leverage my expertise in terms of um, new positions and being able to help the field develop and grow and, and, um, and not just being in classrooms but also to that, how do we um, 
attract a field where we can say, yeah, your starting wage is a livable wage. And when you get to the point where you're 45, you're 50, you have kids, you want to have a home, you can do that too. Mm -hmm. And I think that we are already, one of the things that this survey showed me is that we are already falling short of the base minimum livable wage. So how much farther do we need to go to look at, you know, New York City estimates that a, how a middle, what they call a middle um, class income for a family of four with, um, you know, one stay-at-home parent and two kids and that you can live in a, you know, not in public housing, yeah. it starts at $75,000 mm -hmm. a year. Wow. And uh, and then if you have two working parents, it goes up from there if you're having to pay for child care. And can I pause you? Yeah. Can, okay. I, can you just say that one? One of the I th one of the things that we saw in, in our survey was that the field is overwhelmingly white and overwhelmingly female. So there's 65 uh, I'm sorry, 65 percent Caucasian and 70 percent female. I think there's a reason that our field is overwhelmingly women. It's a reason that it's overwhelmingly white. It takes privilege to work for little too little money. It takes privilege to be able to have somebody else to subsidize you working for less money. It takes privilege to have somebody else subsidizing your graduate degree that you might get or your unpaid internship that you take to get into the field. And that's a, that is a privilege that's not accessible to a lot of people of color. And it's something that men don't settle for. That our, our field cannot support a family. And ha and uh, and that is something that, that it, it then it becomes the second income in a family um, where there's another there's somebody else who's earning a lot more. The reason I was able to go to graduate school was because I, at 24, was married to a lawyer. The Department of Cultural Affairs is working towards creating a cultural plan for New York City, and part of that plan is about diversi diversifying the field, the arts field specifically. Yep. So thank you so much. Okay. We'll talk more. Gosh, I, 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 you know, it's so charged up. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Episode 4, Act 2 of Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body. Arts education, learning, celebrating, and advocating. Join us next time for Penelope McCourty. Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body is edited and produced by Ben Weber. Christopher Ritz-Totten is the creative content manager. Jono Waldman wrote and performed the theme song. Tim Palin designed the logo. Visit us at www.teachingartistry.org. Follow us on Twitter at TA underscore artistry. Like our page on Facebook. Listen to us on SoundCloud. Subscribe and rate us on iTunes. And be sure to share this podcast with all the teaching artists in your life. Let's start it up now. Let's start it up now. Let's start it up now.